My instructions are to uh, sort of go fast tonight. <laughs> uh, we're going to abbreviate things just a tad bit. Really good to see you. Glad you're here. A little surprised you're here. Pleasantly surprised. Our pastor didn't even show up. <laughs> Glad to see your priorities are correct. And w what we have done is um, uh, curtailed activities subsequent to the service. Uh, so student ministry activities will not take place after the services they normally do, nor will Awana. And if you're a choir member, you will have the rest of the night off. Choir practice has been glad to see your enthusiasm for getting out of it. Well, that's the attitude that makes our country great. Um, and the reason for it is, as you know, we're in the line of uh, some rain, that's all. And uh, we just want to make sure you have enough time, especially uh, children and so on, to make your way home before it comes our way. It's only moving at about six miles an hour, so you're going to have plenty of time uh, to get home uh, safely and uh, be sure you're dry and all the rest. And so anyway, without further ado, we'll proceed. Foundations of the faith. It's what we believe. It's what the Bible teaches. We began last week to speak about angels, and this week, uh, could I call your attention to Satan? I, I want to talk to you about him uh, tonight and over the next uh, few weeks. Uh, on the one hand, I, I don't want us to be preoccupied by him, but perhaps what's just as bad as being preoccupied uh, is to ignore him entirely. We really have to know and understand the enemy in order to have a good offense and a good defense. So we'll speak about him tonight. Some here, maybe not here, but possibly reject the existence of Satan. And so to you, I might as well be speaking about, I don't know, some fictitious mythological character but in order to reject the existence of Satan, just to be clear, you have to reject the Bible. And I don't know if you want to do that. You see, it's from the Bible uh, that we find out about Satan. So though the subject is rather distasteful, I have to take everything, so do you, the Bible tells us about. And the Bible tells us plenty about Satan. In fact, he's mentioned in seven Old Testament books and by virtually every New Testament writer. Every one in the New Testament tells us something about Satan. Uh, the very title Satan occurs at least 53 times in the Bible. And it means, by the way, adversary, the adversary. It's a very appropriate name for him because that's who he is. He's the adversary of the Most High God. And if he is the adversary of the Most High God, this isn't good news, but if you belong to the Most High God, then he is your adversary as well, and therefore it's important to understand him. In order to do this, I want to just 
uh, speak to you a little bit about a passage of Old Testament Scripture, uh, which I believe is in regard to Satan, although upon first glance you might think, no, it's a reference only to a literal historical earthly king. Now, you're partially right if, as we read, that's what you think. There was a king of Tyre. He opposed God. He was very anti-God. There's a passage of Scripture, which I'll acquaint you with in just a moment, which speaks about him and God's judgment upon him. But if you pay close attention, I think you'll see that the description with regard to this personage goes way beyond just a human entity. We're really seeing an evil personage. You'll see even behind this king of Tyre who opposed Almighty God. So here's the passage I want to talk to you about. It's Ezekiel chapter 28. Take a look first at verse 12. Son of man, it says, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre. So there he is. And say to him, thus says the Lord God, you had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. And the next verse, verse 13, you were in Eden. And so you see, already the description is telling me, wow, we're going beyond just the king of Tyre. This one who is really being spoken of here somehow existed in and intruded upon even the garden of God. You were in Eden, the garden of God, it says. Every precious stone was your covering. Quite a description of this person. Notice the ruby, the topaz, and the diamond. The beryl, the onyx, and the jasper. The lapis lazuli, the turquoise, and the emerald. And the gold. The workmanship of your settings and sockets were in you. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. Ah, now we know where Satan came from. It says so right there. He came from God. On the day you were created, God created him. I didn't say God created evil. I said God created Satan. And he didn't create Satan to be evil. You'll see how Satan chose to be such. So God is responsible for his existence and when God created him, he didn't create him to be unrighteous and sinful and evil incarnate. The way God made him, he was full of wisdom and very beautiful indeed. But because God created him, it's good to note that he, Satan, has no independent existence. You have to be very careful about underestimating Satan but just as careful about overestimating him. He's not the equal of Almighty God. There is a creator, and Satan is not he. Satan is a creature created by the creator, the one and only most high God. Now, as a creature, he's very, very limited. He has significant limitations. For instance, did you know that Satan does not know all things? He's not all-knowing. He is not omniscient. He's just a created being. Now, because he 
controls an evil network, quite a complex and extensive system of fallen angels known as demons. They report back to him. He is their commander-in-chief, and therefore he's privy to lots of information. But that's how he has to get it. It doesn't come to him in any other way because he's not all-knowing. We have no evidence, for instance, in the Bible that Satan can read our minds. No, he can surely hear, if he chose to, our spoken words, but he cannot read our minds. He's not omniscient, as is God. Now, Satan oftentimes, if he chose to study us directly, could discern what we're thinking, but so could we of one another. Just look at one's nonverbals, at one's facial expression or body posture. Just observe one's conduct, and you can see the thought life uh, that precedes it. So that's how perhaps Satan knows our thoughts, but otherwise he does not. He is not all-powerful, though he is powerful. Again, I don't want to, nor should you, underestimate him, but he's not omnipotent. He's not all-powerful. And he's not omnipresent. He cannot, as God can, be everywhere at the same time. He's not omnipresent. Therefore, he, Satan, does not personally tempt each one of us. Why not? He cannot, because he cannot be in all places at the same time. He's only to, able to tempt each one of us to do what he would like for us to do through his evil, corrupt world system and through his underlings, demons. So he is a created being I'm finding out from Ezekiel 28, right at the outset. Now find out more about him in the next verse, Ezekiel 28, verse 14. You were the anointed cherub who covers, and I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. So we're told here that Satan is an angel. And that's why I'm doing things in this order. We introduced the topic of angels last week. We're still on it. We didn't go from angels to Satan. He are one, according to verse 14. He's referred to as a cherub. Remember last week we spoke about different classifications of angels, one of which was, I mentioned, cherubim cherubim. He's one of those. And it appears that the primary task or assignment of those who were part of the order of cherubim, as was Satan, was to guard the holy throne of God. Can you see the irony in it all? That was Satan's post to protect the majesty and the glory and the very holiness of God. Oh, my goodness, in his quest to be like God, he has become, in every sense, the anti-God. He was to protect the holiness of God, and he now has become the most unholy one. The text used these wonderful poetic words. It speaks of him as being in the holy mountain of God. It says he once walked in the midst of the stones of fire. 
Those are all references to being in the very presence of God himself. That's where Satan was. He was the chief guardian of God's holiness and majesty. And this was God's doing. God put him in this high place. That's what God purposed to do. Why did he? If God is omniscient and all-knowing, Surely he could have foreseen the kind of emissary Satan would have become. Why would he have put him in such a place of honor and prominence and prestige? Folks, God can use all things and everyone, willing or unwilling, to accomplish his purposes. That is the characteristic which we attribute to God alone. It's called sovereignty. Can I give you the premier example of how even Satan's opposition to God was used by Almighty God for good, his glory and our good? Satan sought to it that the Lord Jesus, God's only begotten Son, God in flesh, the Savior of mankind, the sinless one, Satan sought to it that he would be falsely accused, falsely tried, and then crucified and buried. And when it happened, Satan rejoiced. But sovereign God saw to it that Jesus would rise up from death. And when he walked out of that tomb, uh, the Lord Jesus became victor over death, not only on his behalf as the first fruits alive from death, but victor over the last enemy death on our behalf. So don't you see what the evil one intended for evil sovereign God used for good And so one day we'll find out more about why God even allowed Satan and still does to operate so viciously as Satan does. But I'm telling you, you can see already based on your own life experience that God wins the victory in spite of and even through the opposition of uh, Satan. Not only that, when you think of this terrible one who we will learn more about in the weeks ahead, He stands in stark contrast to Almighty God. I've gained a deeper appreciation, I hope you do too, for Almighty God when I compare him to the evil one, Satan. In contrast to Satan's sin, we can see more clearly God's holiness and God's justice and God's goodness and his mercy and his grace. I see it even more more clearly and I I really don't want to be in the domain of darkness. I'm so grateful to have been transferred by God's grace into the kingdom of the beloved Son. I see the difference. I don't want the darkness. I want the light. Jesus is the light. So there's a purpose for Satan, but don't worry. He won't last forever. Ezekiel 28, verse 15. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created. That's how God created Satan. Until unrighteousness was found in you. By the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence and you sinned. Therefore, I, says God, I to Satan, I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God. And I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. He sinned, and along with a host of other sinning evil 
fallen angels, God cast him out of heaven. I have cast you, it says, from the mountain of God. He doesn't have access to that place anymore. This is God's judgment uh, upon Satan already having taken place. But that's not all. There's more to come for him. There's an ultimate judgment of God to befall him in a future day as well. And this is wonderfully, marvelously alluded to in the words of Paul the Apostle, Romans 16, verse 20. And the God of shalom, peace, will soon, not soon enough, but soon as God reckons it, crush Satan. You can't, I can't, don't worry, he can God can. He will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. That's what we need now until it happens. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. Doomsday is coming for Satan. He and his demonic helpers are well aware of it. They know their days are numbered. But Satan is still very, very active here in the world to which he has been cast down to. Therefore, this word of advice is very helpful from the scriptures. 1 Peter 5.8, be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Where is he doing it? Here, because planet Earth is Satan's kingdom now. And all the kingdoms of this world are now under his power and control. If you can accept that, you'll understand what's going on in the world. You'll see what's going on behind the scenes. It has nothing to do with politics and economics. <laughs> There's a cosmic spiritual battle uh, a reality beyond what our eyes can reveal to us. He was there at the mountain of God. He was cast down. He was penalized. He doesn't have access to that place anymore. He has access to this place now. He knows his days are numbered. Trapped in a corner. He's quite vicious and quite active. So even the Lord Jesus referred to Satan repeatedly in the scriptures as the prince of or the ruler of this world. He does so in John 12, 31, for instance. The Lord Jesus speaks here. Now judgment, says he, is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world shall be cast out. Make no mistake about it. Satan is the ruler of the kingdoms of the earth now. So what characterizes his rule, what characterizes Satan's world system, it's this. It's a system of godless governments. It's a system of godless religions. Can you fathom that? I hope you can. Religion isn't a good thing. Religion is a man-made. No, it's not a man-made. Religion is a Satan-inspired thing. His world system is a system of godless governments, of godless religions, of godless education of godless economics, of godless business, and of godless culture. 
It's kind of important to know that. <laughs> it explains what's going on here. This is his world system. Satan's world system, here it is, is anti-God. His world system is specifically anti-Christ. His world system is anti-Bible. This may surprise you. His world system is anti-humanity. But because he can disguise himself as an angel of light, it looks like he's behind all these wonderful humanitarian interests. Oh, no! He wants to devour and slaughter and destroy humankind. Because every living human has the potential to give glory to the Creator and to the Redeemer, and Satan does not want that to happen. His aim is to create a system, a world system that rivals that of the Most High God, but which leaves him out. Can't you see it even in our day? Legislation against prayer... <laughs> All kinds of opposition to the Christian point of view, the likes of which we've never seen before. Now, there's another passage of Scripture that gives us a little bit of additional insight into the ways and character of Satan. And here it is. It's Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12. How you have fallen from heaven. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, sun of the dawn. You've been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. He's referred to here, Satan is, as star of the morning or morning star. You may find it interesting to note uh, that that phrase, star of the morning or morning star, when translated into the Latin Vulgate translation of the Bible, is the name Lucifer. Now, when we think of Lucifer, I doubt you're going to name your next child Lucifer. It's such a negative connotation, but not originally. This characterized Satan before his fall. He was a star of the morning. He became Satan, but he was created to be Lucifer. He was to reflect the brilliant glory of Almighty God. He was to be a star reflecting God's radiance. He was to be a bearer and reflector of God's light. Satan, the star of the morning, was designed to bring glory to the Creator. But Satan rebelled and tried instead, still does, to bring glory to himself. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 16, this same title, Morning Star, is used of the Lord Jesus. He's the true bright and morning star. Satan tries to imitate him, counterfeit him, and replace him. But Jesus is the one and only true bright and morning star. Satan's intention is to assert his will above God's will. Notice in the next passage the five I wills of Satan. Here it is, Isaiah 14, verses 13 and 14. But you said in your heart, here's the first I will, I will ascend to heaven. <clears throat> I will, here's the second, I will raise my throne above the stars of God. The third, I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. The fourth, I will ascend 
above the heights of the clouds and this one. Look how clear it is. I will make myself like the most high. That is the sin of Satan. For Satan to state, think about it, that he will make himself like the most high God. Isn't it to admit that he is not the most high God? Can you see the irrationality of the creature seeking to elevate himself to the level of the creator? <clears throat> Yet he does it anyway. Now, if the creature is not omniscient, not all-knowing, if the creature is not omnipotent as is God, all-powerful, if the creature is not omnipresent, can't be in all places at the same time, in what way could the creature, Satan, you, I, in what way could we have the audacity to think we could be like the Most High God? I'll tell you how. All you have to do, this is what Satan is doing, is to seek to be totally independent of any authority outside yourself. And this is your attempt to be like the Most High. That's what he's doing. Make an attempt to live without respect to any authority other than yourself. Do your own thing. You see, this is the prerogative of God. God doesn't ask you for advice, counsel, or permission to do what he purposes to do. He is the highest authority. He takes counsel according to his own will and carries out his purposes without consultation from anybody else. And that's the sin of Satan. I will be like that. If it feels good, I will do it. I will get all the gusto, no restraints for me. Right to choose, you see? That's the spirit of Satan. I don't have to make recourse to any authority greater than me because I will make myself to be like the Most High, the highest authority on earth. I don't want to trouble you unduly, but the next time you're on the verge of asserting your will over God's, that is the spirit of Satan. It's the same sin that caused his fall. But he will not succeed in replacing the Most High God with himself. I know this because I skipped to the last book. I couldn't wait. I wanted to see how it worked out. And here's what I found in Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. And the devil who deceived them was thrown down into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast, count him, he's got company, where you got, so you got Satan. They were the beast and the false prophet, there's three of them, are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Satan will live eternally from the pit. So will the beast and the false prophet. That's three of them. You know why three? It's the unholy counterfeit trinity. He's not a creator. He's just a creature. He's just a counterfeiter. You have the holy trinity. We spoke about them, the three persons of the trinity, God who is the Father, God who is the Son, God who is the Holy Spirit. Satan took a look and said, I will be like the Most High God. I will have my trinity as well. They'll all be cast into the lake of fire where they will be tormented forever and ever. Why? Because God alone is the most high God. That's why.
He told us about Satan's defeat right here in the last book of the Bible. But better yet, because God is God, knows all things, is omniscient, sees the end from the beginning, God didn't just tell us about Satan's demise in the last book of the Bible. He told us about his demise, get this, in the first book of the Bible. Bear with me a little longer. It's not raining yet. <laughs> Genesis chapter 3, verse 14. Check it out. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, tempted Adam, Eve, to uh, rebel against God. Because you've done this, cursed are you, more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly shall you go, and dust shall you eat all the days of your life. Oh, what a humiliation for the one who would be like the Most High, crawling on his belly through the dust uh, of the earth. Cast down to earth. This is part of God's judgment upon the one who would be God. But there's more judgment to come. Genesis 3:15. Let me just develop this a little bit, and then we'll take leave of one another. But this is such a good verse. I will put enmity. Yeah, no, make no mistake about it. There's a war. We're in it. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He, her seed, the woman's seed, he, whoever that is, he shall bruise you, Satan. He shall bruise you on the head, you, on the other hand. Oh, you'll hurt him. You'll injure him. You will bruise him, but not on the head, on the heel. God makes a promise in Genesis chapter 3, verse 50. But it's not to you, it's not to me. Think about this. He makes a promise to Satan. It's a promise of judgment. It's a promise of judgment on the one who would be God. The seed of the woman shall bruise Satan on the head. That means he, whoever he is, the seed of the woman, will inflict a mortal wound upon Satan. The seed of the woman, in other words, whoever he is, will be victorious. And the serpent, Satan, will bruise him, the woman's seed, on the heel. It'll be painful. It will hurt him and injure him. But it is not a mortal wound. Her seed, the woman's seed, whoever that is, will suffer, but it won't be a mortal wound. Folks, this is the first flicker of hope since the fall of man in Genesis 3, right there. You know what this is right here? This is the good news according to Moses. You're not waiting for the New Testament to read about the goodness of God. This is a flicker of redemption in the very chapter where Satan led our first parents to disobey God, bringing upon all of us the horrors of sin and death and chaos and all the rest. Here is redemption. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, it tells us, don't you see, of the seed of the woman, a victorious deliverer who, deliverer, who though he suffers will ultimately be victorious. Who is this? Oh, it tells us of a continuous kind of a battle, an enmity, a 
conflict, but oh, don't miss it. It also tells us about an ultimate deliverance through the one who will suffer and yet win the victory. <clears throat> 33 years after Yeshua, Jesus, was born in Bethlehem, the house of bread, Bethlehem, 33 years, he was crucified. Satan danced. Satan laughed. Satan claimed the victory. But three days later, there was no more dancing and laughing in hell. There was no more rejoicing by Satan nor by his demons as they witnessed this Jesus, the seed of the woman, coming up out of the tomb and proclaiming then and forevermore his dominion over death and hell and Satan. Oh, no, we must not underestimate the power of Satan, but we better not overestimate him either. He is, even as we speak to each other now, a foe, but a defeated foe. He is now, and he evermore shall be a defeated foe. But there is now, and evermore shall be, victory in Jesus. I couldn't help but thinking of the hymn as I was reading this, uh, studying it and all the rest today. Oh, victory in Jesus. My personal pronoun, hope yours too. Savior forever. Would you stand with me just for a second? Stand with me. Can we sing just that? Oh, victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. Listen to what it sounds like. Let's sing it. Oh, victory in Jesus, my Savior Hang on. Hold it. Stop. Wait a second. Wait, 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 wait. What if he's not your Savior? You can't sing that song. You have to go from this place in the very clutches of the evil one who's working even now for your demise, your eternal demise. Even now, he's making room for you in the pit. He wants company. He wants you to live eternity from the pit as well. He wants you in his company and in the company of the beast and the false prophet. You cannot sing victory in Jesus unless he's my personal, unless you make him your personal savior, and such he will be forever and ever. We're going to sing it again so that those of you who have accepted Jesus as your redeemer, your savior, the victorious deliverer, spoken of by Moses way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that's the first messianic promise in all of the Bible. You can go from this place with that song in your mouth. There is victory in Jesus. Satan is a defeated foe. But if you haven't taken Jesus, the seed of the woman is your savior. You need to stick around when we leave. We'll be over here, some of us. Nothing fancy. Let us talk with you. Let us tell you more. Let's argue. You want to argue? Let's argue. <laughs> this is important stuff. Come on. Let's talk about it. Now for everyone else, the redeemed of the Lord Jesus. Let's sing it one more time. Then we take leave of one another. Let's do it. Oh, victory in Jesus, my Savior.
forever. He sought me and bought me with his redeeming blood. He loved me ere I knew him, and all my love is due him. He plunged me to victory beneath the wind. Go and enjoy victory in the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessings to you. See you next week.